Chapter 11, Part 4 of How I Found Livingstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by James Gladwin, Somerset, September 29, 2007. How I Found Livingstone. Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, including Four Months' Residence with Dr. Livingstone, by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter 11, Part 4, Through Ukawendi, Uvinza, and Uha, to Ujiji. November the 10th, Friday, the 236th day from Bagamoyo on the sea, and the 51st day from Unyaniembe. General direction to Ujiji, west by south. Time of march, six hours. It is a happy, glorious morning. The air is fresh and cool. The sky lovingly smiles on the earth and her children. The deep woods are crowned in bright vernal leafage. The water of the Umkuti, rushing under the emerald shade afforded by the bearded banks, seems to challenge us for the race to Ujiji with its continuous brawl. We are all outside the village cane fence, every man of us looking as spruce, as neat, and happy as when we embarked on the dows at Zanzibar, which seems to us to have been ages ago. We have witnessed and experienced so much. Forward! I walla! I walla! Bana Yango! And the light-hearted braves stride away at a rate which must soon bring us within view of Ujiji. We ascend a hill overgrown with bamboo, descend into a ravine through which dashes an impetuous little torrent, ascend another short hill, then, along a smooth footpath running across the slope of a long ridge, we push on as only eager, light-hearted men can do. In two hours I am warned to prepare for a view of the Tanganyika, for, from the top of a steep mountain, the Kirangozi says I can see it. I almost vent the feeling of my heart in cries. But, wait, we must behold it first. And we press forward and up the hill breathlessly, lest the grand scene hasten away. We are at last on the summit. Ah, not yet can it be seen. A little further on, just yonder, oh, there it is, a silvery gleam. I merely catch sight of it between the trees, and, but here it is at last. True the Tanganyika, and there are the blue-black mountains of Ugoma and Ukaramba. An immense broad sheet, a burnished bed of silver, lucid canopy of blue above. Lofty mountains are its valances. Palm forests form its fringes. The Tanganyika! Hurrah! And the men respond to the exultant cry of the Anglo-Saxon with the lungs of stentors. 
and the great forests and the hills seem to share in our triumph. Was this the place where Burton and Speke stood, Bombay, when they saw the lake first? I don't remember, master. It was somewhere about here, I think. Poor fellows! The one was half paralysed, the other half blind, said Sir Roderick Murchison, when he described Burton and Speke's arrival in view of the Tanganyika. And I, well, I am so happy that, were I quite paralysed and blinded, I think that at this supreme moment I could take up my bed and walk, and all blindness would cease at once. Fortunately, however, I am quite well. I have not suffered a day's sickness since the day I left Unyani Embi. How much would Shaw be willing to give to be in my place now? Who is happiest, he revelling in the luxuries of Unyani Embi, or I standing on the summit of this mountain, looking down with glad eyes and proud heart on the Tanganyika? We are descending the western slope of the mountain, with the valley of the Liush before us. Something like an hour before noon we have gained the thick matete break, which grows on both banks of the river. We wade through the clear stream, arrive on the other side, emerge out of the break, and the gardens of the Wajiji are around us, a perfect marvel of vegetable wealth. Details escape my hasty and partial observation. I am almost overpowered with my own emotions. I notice the graceful palms, neat plots green with vegetable plants, and small villages surrounded with frail fences of the matete cane. We push on rapidly, lest the news of our coming might reach the people of Ujiji before we come in sight and are ready for them. We halt at a little brook, then ascend the long slope of a naked ridge, the very last of the myriads we have crossed. This alone prevents us from seeing the lake in all its vastness. We arrive at the summit, travel across and arrive at its western brim, and pause, reader. The port of Ujiji is below us, embowered in the palms, only five hundred yards from us. At this grand moment, we do not think of the hundreds of miles we have marched, or of the hundreds of hills that we have ascended and descended, or of the many forests we have traversed, or of the jungles and thickets that annoyed us, or of the fervid salt plains that blistered our feet, or of the hot suns that scorched us, nor of the dangers and difficulties now happily surmounted. At last, the sublime hour has arrived. Our dreams, our hopes and anticipations are now about to be realised. Our hearts and our feelings are with our eyes, as we peer into the palms and try to make out in which hut or house lives the white man with the grey beard we heard about when we were at the Malagarazzi. Unfurl the flags and load your guns. We will, master, we will, master, respond the men eagerly. One, two, three, fire! 
A volley from nearly fifty guns roars like a salute from a battery of artillery. We shall note its effect presently on the peaceful-looking village below. Now, Kiwangozi, hold the white man's flag up high, and let the Zanzibar flag bring up the rear. And you men keep close together, and keep firing until we halt in the marketplace, or before the white man's house. You have said to me often that you could smell the fish of the Tanganyika. I can smell the fish of the Tanganyika now. There are fish and beer and a long rest waiting for you. March! Before we had gone a hundred yards, our repeated volleys had the effect desired. We had awakened Ujiji to the knowledge that a caravan was coming, and the people were witnessed rushing up in hundreds to meet us. The mere sight of the flags informed everyone immediately that we were a caravan, but the American flag, borne aloft by gigantic Asmani, whose face was one vast smile on this day, rather staggered them at first. However, many of the people who now approached us remembered the flag. They had seen it float above the American consulate, and from the masthead of many a ship in the harbour of Zanzibar, and they were soon heard welcoming the beautiful flag with cries of Bindera, Kisungu, a white man's flag, Bindera, Merikani, the American flag. Then we were surrounded by them, by Wajiji, Wanamwezi, Wangwana, Wawundi, Waguha, Wabanwema, and Arabs, and were almost deafened with the shouts of Yambo, Yambo Bana, Yambo Bana, Yambo Bana. To all and each of my men the welcome was given. We were now about three hundred yards from the village of Ujiji, and the crowds are dense about me. Suddenly I hear a voice on my right say, Good morning, sir. Startled at hearing this greeting in the midst of such a crowd of black people, I turn sharply around in search of the man, and see him at my side, with the blackest of faces but animated and joyous, a man dressed in a long white shirt, with a turban of American sheeting around his woolly head, and I ask, Who the mischief are you? I am Susie, the servant of Dr. Livingston, said he, smiling, and showing a gleaming row of teeth. What? Is Dr. Livingston here? Yes, sir. In this village? Yes, sir. Are you sure? Sure, sure, sir. Why, I leave him just now. Good morning, sir, said another voice. Hello, said I. Is this another one? Yes, sir. Well, what's your name? My name is Chuma, sir. What? Are you Chuma, the friend of Wekutani? Yes, sir. And is the doctor well? Not very well, sir. Where has he been so long? In Manwema. Now, you, Susie, run and tell the doctor I am coming. Yes, sir. And off he darted like a madman. But by this time we were within... 
two hundred yards of the village, and the multitude was getting denser and almost preventing our march. Flags and streamers were out. Arabs and Wangwana were pushing their way through the natives in order to greet us, for, according to their account, we belonged to them. But the great wonder of all was, how did you come from Unyani Embi? Soon Susi came running back and asked me my name. He had told the doctor I was coming, but the doctor was too surprised to believe him, and when the doctor asked him my name, Susi was rather staggered. But during Susi's absence, the news had been conveyed to the doctor that it was surely a white man that was coming, whose guns were firing and whose flag could be seen. And the great Arab magnates of Ujiji, Mohammed bin Sali, Said bin Majid, Abid bin Suleiman, Mohammed bin Garib, and others, had gathered together before the doctor's house, and the doctor had come out from his veranda to discuss the matter and await my arrival. In the meantime, the head of the expedition had halted, and the Kiranguzi was out of the ranks, holding his flag aloft, and Selim said to me, I see the doctor, sir. Oh, what an old man! He has got a white beard. And I, what would I not have given for a bit of friendly wilderness, where, unseen, I might vent my joy in some mad freak, such as idiotically biting my hand, turning a somersault, or slashing at trees, in order to allay those exciting feelings that were well-nigh uncontrollable. My heart beats fast, but I must not let my face betray my emotions, lest it shall detract from the dignity of a white man appearing under such extraordinary circumstances. So I did that which I thought was most dignified. I pushed back the crowds, and, passing from the rear, walked down a living avenue of people, until I came in front of the semicircle of Arabs, before which stood the white man with the grey beard. As I advanced slowly towards him, I noticed he was pale, that he looked wearied and wan, that he had grey whiskers and moustache, that he wore a bluish cloth cap with a faded gold band on a red ground, round it, and that he had on a red-sleeved waistcoat and a pair of grey tweed trousers. I would have run to him, only I was a coward in the presence of such a mob, would have embraced him, but that I did not know how he would receive me. So I did what moral cowardice and false pride suggested was the best thing, walked deliberately to him, took off my hat and said, Dr. Livingstone, I presume? Yes, said he, with a kind, cordial smile, lifting his cap slightly. I replaced my hat on my head and he replaced his cap, and we both grasped hands. I then said aloud, I thank God, Doctor, I have been permitted to see you. He answered, I feel thankful that I am here to welcome you. I turned to the Arabs, 
took off my hat to them in response to the saluting chorus of yambos I received, and the doctor introduced them to me by name. Then, oblivious of the men who shared with me my dangers, we, Livingston and I, turned our faces towards his house. He pointed to the veranda, or rather, mud platform, under the broad, overhanging eaves. He pointed to his own particular seat, which I saw his age and experience in Africa had suggested, namely, a straw mat with a goatskin over it, and another skin nailed against the wall to protect his back from contact with the cold mud. I protested against taking this seat, which so much more befitted him than I, but the doctor would not yield. I must take it. We were seated, the doctor and I, with our backs to the wall. The Arabs took seats on our left. More than a thousand natives were in our front, filling the whole square densely, indulging their curiosity, and discussing the fact of two white men meeting at Ujiji, one just come from Manuema in the west, the other from Unaniembi in the east. Conversation began. What about? I declare I have forgotten. Oh, we mutually asked questions of one another, such as, How did you come here? And, Where have you been all this long time? The world has believed you to be dead. Yes, that was the way it began. But whatever the doctor informed me, and that which I communicated to him, I cannot correctly report, for I find myself gazing at him, conning the wonderful figure and face of the man at whose side I now sat in Central Africa. Every hair of his head and beard, every wrinkle of his face, the wanness of his features and the slightly wearied look he wore, were all imparting intelligence to me. The knowledge I craved for so much ever since I heard the words, Take what you want, but find Livingstone. What I saw was deeply interesting intelligence to me, and unvarnished truth. I was listening and reading at the same time. What did these dumb witnesses relate to me? Oh, reader, had you been at my side on this day in Ujiji, how eloquently could be told the nature of this man's work? Had you been there but to see and hear? His lips gave me the details, lips that never lie. I cannot repeat what he said. I was too much engrossed to take my notebook out and begin to stenograph his story. He had so much to say that he began at the end, seemingly oblivious of the fact that five or six years had to be accounted for. But his account was oozing out. It was growing fast into grand proportions, into a most marvellous history of deeds. The Arabs rose up, with a delicacy I approved, as if they intuitively knew that we ought to be left to ourselves. I sent Bombay with them to give them the news that they also wanted so much to know about the affairs of Unyani Embi. Said bin Majid was the father of the gallant young man whom I saw at Masangi, and who fought with me at Zimbizo, and who soon afterwards was killed by Mirambo's Ruga Ruga in the forest of Wili Ankaru. And knowing that I had been there, 
he earnestly desired to hear the tale of the fight. But they had all friends at Unyani Embi, and it was but natural that they should be anxious to hear of what concerned them. After giving orders to Bombay and Asmani for the provisioning of the men of the expedition, I called Kaif Halek, or How do you do? and introduced him to Dr. Livingstone as one of the soldiers in charge of certain goods left at Unyani Embi, whom I had compelled to accompany me to Ujiji, that he might deliver in person to his master the letter-bag with which he had been entrusted. This was that famous letter-bag marked November the 1st, 1870, which was now delivered into the doctor's hands 365 days after it left Zanzibar. How long, I wonder, had it remained at Unyani Embi, had I not been dispatched into Central Africa in search of the great traveller? The doctor kept the letter-bag on his knee, then, presently, opened it, looked at the letters contained there, and read one or two of his children's letters his face in the meanwhile lighting up. He asked me to tell him the news. No, doctor, said I, read your letters first, which I'm sure you must be impatient to read. Ah, said he, I have waited years for letters, and I have been taught patience. I can surely afford to wait a few hours longer. No, tell me the general news. How is the world getting along? You probably know much already. Do you know that the Suez Canal is a fact, is opened, and a regular trade carried on between Europe and India through it? I did not hear about the opening of it. Well, that is grand news. What else? Shortly I found myself enacting the part of an annual periodical to him. There was no need of exaggeration of any penny-a-line news or of any sensationalism. The world had witnessed and experienced much the last few years. The Pacific Railroad had been completed, 1869. Grant had been elected President of the United States. Egypt had been flooded with savans. The Cretan Rebellion had terminated, 1866-1868, a Spanish revolution had driven Isabella from the throne of Spain, and a regent had been appointed. General Prim was assassinated, a Castellar had electrified Europe with his advanced ideas upon the liberty of worship, Russia had humbled Denmark and annexed Schleswig-Holstein, 1864, and her armies were now around Paris. The Man of Destiny was a prisoner at Wilhelm's Hoey. The Queen of Fashion and the Empress of the French was a fugitive, and the child born in the purple had lost forever the imperial crown intended for his head. The Napoleon dynasty was extinguished by the Prussians, Bismarck and von Moltke, and France, the proud empire, was humbled to the dust. What could a man have exaggerated of these facts, what a budget of news it was to one who had emerged from the depths of the primeval forests of Manwema. The reflection of the dazzling light of civilization was cast on him, 
while Livingstone was thus listening in wonder to one of the most exciting pages of history ever repeated. How the puny deeds of barbarism paled before these! Who could tell under what new phases of uneasy life Europe was labouring even then, while we, two of her lonely children, rehearsed the tale of her late woes and glories? More worthily, perhaps, had the tongue of a lyric Demodocus recounted them, but in the absence of the poet, the newspaper correspondent performed his part as well and truthfully as he could. Not long after the Arabs had departed, a dishful of hot hashed meat cakes was sent to us by Said bin Majid, and a curried chicken was received from Mohammed bin Sali, and Moeni Kari sent a dishful of stewed goat meat and rice. And thus presents of food came in succession, and as fast as they were brought we set to. I had a healthy, stubborn digestion. The exercise I had taken had put it in prime order. But Livingstone, he had been complaining that he had no appetite, that his stomach refused everything but a cup of tea now and then, he ate also, ate like a vigorous, hungry man, and, as he vied with me in demolishing the pancakes, he kept repeating, You have brought me new life. You have brought me new life. Oh, by George, I said, I've forgotten something. Hasten, Selim, and bring that bottle. You know which, and bring me the silver goblets. I brought this bottle on purpose for this event, which I hoped would come to pass, though often it seemed useless to expect it. Selim knew where the bottle was, and he soon returned with it, a bottle of Sileri champagne, and, handing the doctor a silver goblet brimful of the exhilarating wine, and pouring a small quantity into my own, I said, Dr. Livingstone, to your very good health, sir, and to yours, he responded smilingly. And the champagne I had treasured for this happy meeting was drunk with hearty good wishes to each other. But we kept on talking and talking, and prepared food was being brought to us all that afternoon, and we kept on eating each time it was brought, until I had eaten even to repletion, and the doctor was obliged to confess that he had eaten enough. Still, Halima, the female cook of the doctor's establishment, was in a state of the greatest excitement. She had been protruding her head out of the cookhouse to make sure that there really were two white men sitting down in the veranda, when there used to be only one, who would not, because he could not, eat anything, and she had been considerably exercised in her mind about this fact. She was afraid the doctor did not properly appreciate her culinary abilities, but now she was amazed at the extraordinary quantity of food eaten, and she was in a state of delightful excitement. We could hear her tongue rolling off a tremendous volume of clatter to the wandering crowds who halted before the kitchen to hear the current of news with which she edified them. Poor, faithful soul! While we listened to the noise of her furious gossip, the doctor related her faithful services, 
and the terrible anxiety she evinced when the guns first announced the arrival of another white man in Ujiji. How she had been flying about in a state of the utmost excitement, from the kitchen into his presence and out again into the square, asking all sorts of questions. How she was in despair at the scantiness of the general larder and treasury of the strange household. How she was anxious to make up for their poverty by a grand appearance. To make up a sort of barmicide feast to welcome the white man. Why, said she, is he not one of us? Does he not bring plenty of cloth and beads? Talk about the Arabs. Who are they that they should be compared to white men? Arabs, indeed. The doctor and I conversed upon many things, especially upon his own immediate troubles, and his disappointments upon his arrival in Ujiji, when told that all his goods had been sold, and he was reduced to poverty. He had but twenty cloths or so left of the stock he had deposited with a man called Sharif, the half-caste drunken tailor, who was sent by the consul in charge of the goods. Besides which, he had been suffering from an attack of dysentery, and his condition was most deplorable. He was but little improved on this day, though he had eaten well, and already began to feel stronger and better. This day, like all others, though big with happiness to me, at last was fading away. While sitting with our faces looking to the east, as Livingstone had been sitting for days preceding my arrival, we noted the dark shadows which crept up above the grove of palms beyond the village, and above the rampart of mountains which we had crossed that day, now looming through the fast approaching darkness, and we listened with our hearts full of gratitude to the great giver of good and dispenser of all happiness, to the sonorous thunder of the surf of the Tanganyika, and to the chorus which the night insect sang. Hours passed, and we were still sitting there with our minds busy upon the day's remarkable events, when I remembered that the traveller had not yet read his letters. Doctor, I said, you had better read your letters. I will not keep you up any longer. Yes, he answered, it is getting late, and I will go and read my friend's letters. Good night, and God bless you. Good night, my dear doctor, and let me hope that your news will be such as you desire. I have now related, by means of my diary, how I found Livingston, as recorded on the evening of that great day. I have been averse to reduce it by process of excision and suppression into a mere cold narrative, because by so doing I would be unable to record what feelings swayed each member of the expedition as well as myself during the days preceding the discovery of the lost traveller, and, more especially, the day it was the good fortune of both Livingstone and myself to clasp each other's hands in the strong friendship which was born in that hour we thus strangely met. The aged traveller, though cruelly belied, contrary to all previous expectation, received me as a friend. 
and the cordial warmth with which he accepted my greeting, the courtesy with which he tendered to me a shelter in his own house, the simple candour of his conversation, graced by unusual modesty of manner and meekness of spirit, wrought in me such a violent reaction in his favour that when the parting good-night was uttered, I felt a momentary vague fear lest the fullness of joy which I experienced that evening would be diminished by some envious fate before the morrow's sun should rise above Ujiji. End of chapter 11, part 4